Um, so, and I do have to say, I feel really nervous about talking to you because you're so famous. I'm not famous at all. Just, yeah. a lad from, just a lad from old. Yeah, well, yes. And also, you have been in the game for a long time. And September this year, 35 years. It's amazing. Yeah. And I don't need to ask you, did you always want to be a chef or when did you become a chef? Because that's already well known. And I know. Mm. And I, I actually didn't want to be a chef. I wanted to be a bricklayer. Did you? Yeah. It's quite different. Yeah, there was four and a half million unemployed at the time. Okay, yeah. And I couldn't get a job, so my dad got me a job in a chemical factory in okay. a YTS because Margaret Thatcher basically shut the whole of my town down. My, team, uh, my town was a big fishing industry town and she mm. took the whole fishing industry and went to shit. So then she introduced into the whole of England at the time what's called a YTS, which was a youth training scheme. Mm. So it was guaranteed for one year, you do some form of training, you get paid £27.50. Okay. So my dad got me a youth training scheme in BP Chemicals Industrial Canteen. Okay. And then how did you <laughs> get well, out of basically that? Basically, they, what they did, training that was pretty basic. It was like peeling spuds and all that. Lot. But they had like two, three different canteen areas. Plus okay. they did like a blast chilling for the shift workers. And also they had like a, a private house where all the executives, so I actually went to cook in a few places as well as a sports and social club. Mm. And then the positive thing out of all of that was uh, I did day release. Mm. So I went to school day release. Okay. Second year, I paid myself to go to school and I was casual kitchen hand at the same place. And after second lesson, he asked everybody what he was doing. And I said, oh, I wash dishes. And the teacher said to me, I won't be able to keep up. And I said, I've paid for it myself. Worst case scenario, I'll fail, just let me do it. And I finished with uh, three distinctions. Wow. And um, when I got the qualifications, they gave me a book. And it was all the five-star hotels in Great Britain. So I wrote uh, all the ones I recognised, and I managed to get a job at the Savoy Okay, wow, that's a pretty good start. I lied there. Yeah. I lied. I told them I was a chef, but I wasn't. Yeah, yeah. And they knew I wasn't, but they'd give me the job anyway, because I, I wouldn't leave, I just stayed there. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? A lot of it's persistence yeah. and, and showing them that you're willing to put in those hard yards and so on. Of course, this, this day and age is a little bit different mm. because of the, um, how can I say, the legal working hours for stuff. I don't endorse people working long hours, but basically back in my day, your pay was the knowledge. Mm. So basically, from BP Chemicals Industrial Canteen at 15, to head chef for Michael Pierre White's Harvest Restaurant by the age of 23. Mm. And I didn't come by a 38 hour week. No, that's right, of course. Well, I do think it's a different day and age. And, it, and, um, and interestingly, I've, a lot of the chefs that I've spoken to lament the likes of MasterChef and so on. And, but now I'm speaking to someone who's been on MasterChef in terms of the, yeah. you know, the challenges and so on. Uh, MasterChef, my view of MasterChef. You know, it's actually good because it puts the industry out there. It puts yes. the restaurants out there. Yes. It actually encourages people to get involved with hospitality. The downside is some of those people that have got involved with the hospitality after the show get a little bit of a rude awakening, should I say. That's right. Because yeah, there is pressure on the TV. Yes, there is all the pressure tests, but it's, how can I say, it's like a controlled pressure, if you know what I mean? Mm. There's nothing like working in an environment where tonight people are supposed to come in at 6, 6.30, 7, 7.30, but they come in when they like some days, sometimes they're all late, sometimes they're all early. Mm. And the pressure to produce the food of the standard like what you had on our simple lunch menu is intense as well yeah. to get the 
the preparation done and maintain standards. So well, yeah, a that's lot of them right. With it, yeah. And and it, it's that idea that there is um, something very glamorous involved in it, and um, and and there's a there's kind of a rock star title that's attached to chefs these days. Um, and, and, I think Marco stayed the rock star title yeah, because you know he's six foot five, extremely handsome, smoking in the kitchen, etc., etc., etc. Yeah. But at the end of the day, he can fucking cook. That's it. <laughs> and he was an amazing cook and very gifted man, and he managed to get to the top of his game at a very early age. Mm. And he basically set the benchmark because um, back in them days, I mean, I was the youngest chef to party at the Warside, and I was twenty one. Mm. He's. I think five years older than me and he had three star Michelin by the age of 30. Mm. So he's an anomaly, but what he did when he made me head chef, he opened the door for people of my age group, which mm. was in the 20s, that you are given a choice. Back in the day, if you went to the big hotels, you was in your 30s before you went to chef the party strokes. Right. Chef. Yeah, I see what you're saying. So the way he, he big figured it is if you can do it, no matter how old you are. Mm. That was quite an that was quite an intense job as well. Oh, I bet it was, and and you know that was in the days of the brigades and the shouting chefs. And it certainly was. I mean, I, I'm not going to deny I had a little bit of a temper on me when I was in the twenties. But again, it's a little bit of inexperience, a little bit of you know, it's like life depends on that player. Where yeah. and also a lot of it, as as I said to somebody before. Said you're an amazing chef. I said I became a chef when I moved to Hong Kong. Mm. I was an amazing cook, but I became a chef when I went to Hong Kong. Is that right? Yeah. Even after working in all those places in London? Because when I had my own restaurants and in London and all that lot, I was a brilliant cook. But as being as the head chef, you have to be a brilliant manager. You can't do it all on your own. Yes. You've got to be able to not keep everything stored in here. You have to have the the wants, the ability, the teaching prowess to give that to the people to make all of it happen and you're basically, all you are is a quality controller at the end of it. Mm-hmm. I used to do everything myself. I did all my recipes myself. Mm-hmm. On being the same. Marco's the same. Mm-hmm. But when, you went to, when I went to Hong Kong, I had 12 people in my kitchen brigade which spoke very little English. So they need to follow recipes and basically all my recipes were originally 35 kilo of recipes. Right. I came back with a memory stick with 20,000 recipes on. That's all the recipes yeah. handwritten or God. typed. Or, yeah. But again, I remember giving um, a, a lad a recipe for a smoked salmon mousse. Hard copy, of course. Mm. Fingerprints and bits of salmon and shit all over it. And he made it and I tested it. I said, what's this? He goes, smoked salmon mousse. So where's the fucking salt? Where's the pepper? Where's the lemon juice? He goes, where's the salt? Where's the pepper? Where's the lemon juice? Yeah, yeah. And at that point onwards, every recipe I ever did was, uh, after that was, I re, one of my guys retyped all of them, put them onto mm. the computer, and amended instead of one piece of shallot, it's grams of shallot, how many grams? Salt, how many grams? Pepper, how many grams? Mm. So when I do a recipe now, I've got a young lad coming from, uh, Cordon Bleu. He wants a job here. He's got, he finishes his Cordon Bleu class in October. So I said, let me come work for free. No problem. His teacher actually sent him to me. I used to work with him. And he's spoke, not supposed to be in today because he's coming in tomorrow to do the service, but he's shitting himself. Mm. So when he came in, I said, right, you're doing the amuse boost tonight. What is it? I said, it's tomato, tomato, and tomato. 
Step one, tomato. Tomato consomme jelly. Tomato number two is tartare of compressed tomatoes with olives, preserved lemon, shallots, and basil. Tomato number three, smoked tomato sorbet. Mm. Right. So I said, right, the first thing you do is put the jelly. And I said, tomorrow, I'll give you the recipes, and then I'll show you how to make them. Mm. So you're in charge of the newest bush. So he has to think. Yeah. You can do it, because I've done all the prep, I've done all mm. the, everything's ready, all he has to do is put in a little dough. Mm. And that's passing on the information. But them recipes I've done are like tomato consomme. I can remember I met tomato consomme. It's right. The reason is, is I'm actually, I've written five books, and I'm actually dyslexic. And I actually don't, I haven't read any of my own books or anything. So I remember, I mean, basically the way I, I write the recipes down is if I'm making a new recipe, the kids just get me like a cabbage, all the ingredients, and I'll bang it out. And what they'll do is wait after I've banged it out, you know what I mean? Mm. And then we'll document it. So everything I do now, and did from Hong Kong onwards, is weighed, measured, documented methods. So mm. the first cookbook I did for Marco was a nightmare, because everything was in here. Second one I did at Estes Test was a nightmare. The third, the fourth, and the fifth, which was one in Hong Kong, two at the Atlantic. All the databases are there, all I have to do is write a method. That's right, okay. No methods on any of my recipes. No. But it is an interesting thing that you're saying about um, sort of going from the cook to chef thing, and, and, and that is through passing on that knowledge. Yes. I, I'm a French teacher, and I lived in France, uh, Fra France, French, I lived in France, and I, could, I can speak French fluently, but it wasn't actually until I started teaching other people how to speak French that it really, really clicked, clicked for me because yeah. I think then you're you're really getting to the heart of what you do and to be able to share that, you really have to understand it and not just feel it and, you know. Because I, I actually learned French when I lived in France. Mm. I got kicked out of French class after two weeks because why the fuck do I need to learn French? I mm. never use it. Why, I'm not going to work in France as a bricklayer, so I don't need it. <laughs> well, necessity <laughs> is such a good teacher. If you need to know it, then yeah. you learn it. <laughs> if I want gas, electric, and a bunch of Marlboros, there's no, uh, no getting away from it. No, that's right. Yeah. So I, was in, I lived in France for a year, but the, the wake-up call for me was um, when I went to Savoy and all the orders were in broken French, and then when I went to the waterside, it was even worse. Mm. All the orders, French. All yes. the staff, 90% French. Wow, okay. Yeah. So everything was French, I had no idea. No. Even, the, even Mr. Rouge to swear at you in French. Yeah. So the quicker I learned how why he was calling me a petit con was this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and I've, so I've been reading a, about you and a lot of the phrases people are using with Ryan is that you've, you've been under the radar for a few years and you've yes, right. ret returned. Um, what's behind that decision to, to step out again? How old are you? Unpolite. 40, I'm 46. No, well, I'm 50 this year. Yeah. And Crystal, just my daughter. My eldest son, Peter, he's sous chef. Uh, my second son, Donovan, he's 19. Peter's 25. Crystal, 23. Donovan, 19. Alfred, 8. I came up from Hong Kong with all the family. Mm. So I actually had to work in a place for the first time in my life, which paid me very good salary, but I did things I didn't learn how to do. Yeah. I had to figure out how to do 600 covers every night, or 500 covers every night. I had to learn how to do that. Right. But the attention to detail that you had for lunch was just not me. Mm. And the wife was sick and tired of me coming home. I used to drink heavily, 
you know, I had a gut like that, and she told me to get your shit together, go and find a restaurant, go to the gym, get fit, get healthy, and go and open a restaurant. So my business partner's actually Alex Law, who was with me in Hong Kong as a, fair, as a I think he was commie number one then, and then he got promoted to chef to party. Then I got him promoted to junior sous, uh, to sous chef. And then when he got on the plane in Hong Kong as a sous chef, when he landed, he was a head chef. Mm. And now when I told him was, I was going to leave and help me on restaurant, well, he came on board and he's my business partner. Mm. Midlife crisis, I don't know, but I'm just too sick of cooking shit. To it wasn't shit, but you know what I mean? No, it was, yeah. There's no love. There's, yes. I, I can, that pork belly's on the, on the menu at the moment because the, the plums are in season, the compots are in season, I bought them, I preserved them, and when they're gone, I'll change the dish. Mm. The salmon, I put the salmon on the menu four weeks ago, and I'm changing it on Wednesday. What a shame. I, I just, salmon dish, but different salmon dish. Oh, uh, because I was reading, because you know, I've spoken to quite a few chefs now and across a range of different... Um, experience philosophies always head chefs but you know they could be quite new or they could be and you know i feel like there's uh, there's either chefs who are totally on trend who are following whatever wave is happening and in melbourne that that can happen and then there are a lot of chefs who are really um favoring that appreciation of technique and yeah. not following trend but doing the classics really well exactly i, if, I don't know if you remember reading in quite a few of the reviews it's like uh, they're referring to me as a comeback tour right like coming back with these classics but back in the day when I had asked I wasn't cooking a salmon at 50 degrees I was doing it at 80 degrees so is that a classic or a refined classic mm. or if I did smoked trout at Est 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 I'd be hot smoking it and making a really fucked up job of it because you couldn't um, calculate the temperatures right properly so I figured out how to do it properly so I I, I fill it here, I salt it, I cold smoke it, I vacuum pack it with olive oil and I cook it in a water bath at 58 degrees for four minutes and everyone's mm. perfect. Mm. So is that comeback tour or I'm just cooking what I like to cook? I spoke to Marco about it and he goes, so you'll be successful because you're going to do all the things you're good at. You cook from the heart, use the extensive knowledge of techniques that you have and you cook real food. Mm. So the trends are going to come and the trends are going to go. One second. Jodie. Here's Jodie. She looks after my marketing. Oh, hello. I'm Joan. It's lovely to meet you, Jodie. How was lunch? It was so amazing. And I haven't even yet got into my big enraptured response to the sermon. Um, <laughs> oh, but yeah, I was going to say, and it might be pertinent for you, is that I do need a profile photo of, my, of um, Donovan. And, and I, it might not be that you want to have your photo taken today. No, no, no. got a good photo. Oh, we've got it. Yeah, we've got it all. Yeah, yeah all. then I'll just use it. Yeah, um, would you like the new well, um, I haven't. I generally just have the photo of the yeah. chef um, for the conversation with the chef. But I'm, I am branching out, but it'll be, I would be ashamed not to have well, some food. It's all in the same Dropbox. Okay, so I'll send it through, and it's all titled, so you know which dish okay. to which. Um, you. I'll get your email if you still. Yeah. yeah. I love them for you to come in. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, yeah. I, just, I had one of those transporting moments. Which, and I'm not saying because you don't need any kind of fishery. <laughs> but um, that salmon, I yeah. honestly, it, I took the first mouthful and I thought, this is actually the best thing I've ever eaten. <laughs> and I've eaten a lot of food and, and I lived in France, whatever. But um, just that um, the salmon was so perfectly cooked, but just the, the slight bit of salt and the 
the confit onions and then those tiny little carrots and just the sauce was incredible and I was like actually it feels like I'm being reminded of some really good time I had that was I can't even remember and it, it was it was wonderful. It into some great it did. moment. So the thing is is Jody's been with us on the journey and how many salmon dishes I've done there you don't even eat this salmon this is a new one with uh, Maron American and gnocchi and chestnuts oh, and baby onions and artichoke yeah. this odd phenomenal kind of flavor. Well, I just think it's, it's funny because some people don't like salmon and mm. I almost feel like well, you should you, you know you really need to have don salmon because I can understand why people have been put off salmon mm. you know um, so many places just prepare it so poorly. That's right but I thought I yeah. didn't like that sausage and then yeah. I just had your mousse with the uh, no, no, that's actually a cotton and jack recipe. Oh. I had to modify it because <laughs> the blood you get out here is not straight out of the neck of the pig. It's got a coagulant in it. And when I made it here, it tastes like the Dead Sea. Because ah. the coagulant's got a high salt content. So I had to change the whole recipe. But it's basically, back in, I think it was at the cotton and jack in 1991, I think, or 92. And it was their most expensive dish on the menu. Mm. The Boudinois. because I just I came a bit early and I went into a cafe and I had some things I wanted to type up for something else and um just the conversations that you hear in North oh, Fitzroy every time I come here I hear things like someone saying if you've got that cafe there and I'm not saying one of my girls goes every morning for a coffee from there there's this guy right don't take offense to this he's wearing a brow with fake tits mm-hmm. and a skirt on yeah he's a bloke yeah he's got short hair and a cap on with like and, and he's just, he's out there and he's just shopping. I've seen him in Pete Monty shopping with his just a bra on. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what not the Well, well, okay, so the so first one along that. those lines was like on the street, two girls like in their 20s, young, like totally hipster looking, like, you know, gorgeous. So I've just been for my regular sexual health check and I just, I have to say, it's always on a Thursday right before, and I didn't wait to hear right before what. Yeah. But it, and then I went into the cafe and someone's going, I just, I really like to dream and I like to remember my dreams. Oh, <laughs> like, God. Yeah. Quick, get out of that conversation. What, what is yeah. happening here? And then I come here and it's so um, classical and you've taken the time with the food and no one's ordering, well, they might try to order de- um, decaf soy or camels, milk lattes, but it's so different, such a juxtaposition to what's outside. Why are you here? Why? Because, um, A, the rent. Mm. (laughs) Because, again, everywhere... I'm going to leave you to it. I'll find you. Because um, my car is going to get towed. Lovely to meet you. I'll send that to you this afternoon. I'll get... um, Thank you. Okay, love. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Basically, it was a... uh, I was looking for two years. And the bad thing is, about this place, one bad thing. I live in Altona North, so mm. it takes me an hour every morning to get here and an hour to get home. Mm. My business partner lives seven minutes away. Yeah. So when we're looking, he's looking at this side of the town <laughs> and I'm looking that side That's of the town. Right. Basically, I wanted a venue which we could actually use and not have to think about changing next year, year after. As a business evolves, 
There's so many things I can do. The landlord's my next door neighbour. He's a really nice Italian family. Kitchen, I can do better food than what you had today, but I'll have to extend the kitchen. So that means my private room will get smaller. Mm. The reason why I left this, this, this was too small. I couldn't do anything else with it. Mm. That's why I went to one day. Where here, there's potential, not to really detract from the 60 covers here, but detract from the, the private dining area at the back. It's, it's actually big for 60. So then you're tempted to do 70. But I can't handle 70 in the kitchen because the kitchen no. is the size of a, this table. Yeah. So whoever designed the original uh, kitchen stroke dining areas was it not the guy I bought it or for the, the one before them. He's obviously a front of house guy. Just ram as many covers as you can and don't worry about to get it out of the kitchen. That's right. So my plan and Alex's plan, hopefully maybe next year or a little bit into next year, is extend the kitchen further out. So I have more room in the kitchen. I can get better equipment in the kitchen. I can mm. up the ante with the food. Hopefully it's busy enough for me to warrant a few more staff, but I want to get young staff. I've got enough mature staff at the moment. My chef's been with me for 15 years my partner two others have been with me seven years and one three years mm. so i want to get not fresh off the block but i want some youth mm. that youth brings in enthusiasm and makes me and my team become good teachers like mm. the, as i said the young guy turned up today he's just been brainwashed because i'm just giving 48 recipes without even looking at a recipe yeah yeah and they're like like this now he's gonna pick all his stuff and the tempo from prep and leaving at three o'clock from the tempo ready for dinner service slightly gets more intense from mm. three o'clock onwards and then we break at um, 3.30, 4 o'clock and have some to eat and then it's finishing off before the service. So the tempo is okay till about two, three, mm. then we eat and then it moves up. Mm. But, Estes, Estes, do you ever go there? I was, I've only been here for since 2011. Right. Esk was in um, South Melbourne, end of Clarendon Street. Everybody asked me why we opened a restaurant there. Mm. But people used to come. I, I wasn't depending on walk-ins. Walk-ins normally are people trying to chance their way in or people are walking by just think they're going to get a, a, a cheap feed or a, a quick feed. Mm. The diners I want to attract here are people actually want to have dinner. I don't want to turn their tables to make it the, the money. I want them to have dinner have conversations, no need to be on that all the time, Facebooking each other while they're at the table. Yeah, yeah. Actually enjoy dinner, sit down, have a bottle of wine, a couple of bottles of wine, feel as though I'm not trying to kick you out. That's why, if you have a look, I've got large space between all the tables. Oh, I love that, yes. And Beautiful I, seats. Yeah, well, Alex and I, mainly me, designed all the, all the stuff. The guy who did the Renault, uh, I met him at my youngest son Alfred's best friend's birthday party. And I showed him an image of what I wanted to do, and he's a builder, and he just started a shop fitting business. So him and his brother did all the rent-out, sourced all the wood. These were made in High Point from recycled 100-year-old wow. timber. The bar that was come from New South Wales, all the timbers, um, recycled railway beams. The five metres long, they weigh 150 kilo each beam. Mm. Um, yeah, a friend of mine, I told him the chairs I want, he sourced them, and I got all these made, the same as the bar stools. All the crockery, I went to Robert Gordon's factory and showed him what I wanted and he tailor made them all for me. Mm. Some of the pieces are uncut, the textures are all Beautiful, different. Yeah. And then other ones I got made by an artist's mother, where you put a dish comes in and stuff like that. 
that's from a different potter, they were all hand-thrown and they're totally different. The cutlery, they came from France, because all the cutlery in Melbourne were all Robert Welsh or Robert Sam, so mm. I didn't want that, I wanted to get something different. So the whole experience is important for you? If you're going to have minimalistic, the shit on the table has to be of good quality, yeah. or else it just looks like a cafe. But again, you spend money on real proper hardwood, you spend money on the chairs, and then the, the accompaniments that go with it are of a high quality, then all of a sudden, they said, oh, I expect, one, one, one said, uh, a, couple of, a gay couple said to me, oh, this isn't really fine dining, I've just come back from Bray and it's too noisy. I said, I don't put myself as fine dining. I put myself as fine food in an industrial, casual environment. Mm. Hence why I don't have three tablecloths padded and ironed on the table and you, a frumpy guy with a, a bow tie and a, a penguin suit on, yeah. breathing over me. I want you to feel relaxed, but yet, if you want to spend three and a half grand on a bottle of Chateau Margot, I've got it. Mm. Or if you want to have tap water, one of the most contentious things in Australia is bottled water. You all say, hey, where's the bottled water? I'm not paying that. And all the complaints in all the restaurants I've ever owned or worked in in Australia is about the bottled water. I can't believe you charge me 13 bucks for a sandwich. Fuck that then. So this is a filtration system. Yeah. So I use Melbourne's the best water in the world apparently. You'd probably argue that thing. In New, New Zealand. <laughs> and it's filtered and it's either chilled and carbonated and it's un unlimited for six bucks. Mm. Or the chilled tap water is free or the room temperature tap water is free. Do you yeah. know what? I've had no complaints about water. Yeah. People have no problem spending six bucks on soda stream tap water. That's all it is. Yeah. But again, you introduce the San Pellegrino or the Vittoria or the Fuji or whatever it is. You always whine about the price mm. of water. Mm. No need. It's an interesting, yeah, they're an interesting breed, Australians. Quite different to yeah, New Zealanders. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm a citizen now and I've been here for on and off 10 years before, seven years away, and this is like eight years. Mm. The problem is with Australia and the very tall poppy. I don't know, you, you know what I mean well, it's by the same that? In, we do here in New Zealand as well, yeah. Rather than saying, Farrah go by and say, one day I'm going to spy to get a fire, they're all going to look at that for a dickhead. Hey, that's it. <laughs> that's strange, isn't it? And that's why a lot of, so many people are sort of, you know, well, you're British, so you're probably anti-French as well, but, um, you know, the idea that the French are so arrogant and whatever, but they're actually just really confident in who they are, and they come from a long history of being in one place, whereas we are colonial, like yeah. we're, we're new nations and sure. we don't have that sense of identity. Do you know the thing that I've found in France more than anything else is the French don't dig people that don't make an effort to speak their language. <laughs> no, that's right. If you're trying to speak English with a French accent in a loud voice like the Yanks do when they go to Paris, yes. they despise them with that's a passion. Right. Or yeah. if you get the... The pissheads from England go on a trip to the south of France and all they want is fucking fish and chips and pants, pants and what in a red barrel. Then of course, That's it. they're gonna spit in their coffee. Mm. But if you actually make an effort, I lived in a village called Juani. And nobody spoke English. Mm. Nobody in the village. No. And when I turned up in the kitchen, nobody spoke English as well. However, when I had a massive argument and almost, I actually raced somebody. Somebody wanted to race me at filleting a fish. <laughs> Which was a bad move. Because <laughs> at Marco's, you had to be quick, there was only five in the kitchen and everything yeah. was fresh every day. And beyond that point, I actually hammered him two fish to one 
And after that, they all spoke English. Mm. But before that, none of them spoke English. Yeah. So respecting is like coming to our country and we don't speak our language. Mm. We're not gonna make it easy. But in the end of the day, if you make the effort, yes. they're actually very yeah. nice. I love it. I, I actually I told my wife, and my wife's a Filipino. So one day, one of my best friends lives in um, near Toulouse, and his family are in a village outside of Toulouse. And he got married, and we went there. I loved it. All the things tick for me. You've got the really mm. good boulanger, nice big houses where you can grow your own shit. No real outside world influence. Mm. I said to my wife, I'd like to retire there. She's like, why? Where can I shop? Mm. My wife's mm. mad for a shop. Yeah. I lived for a year in Chateau Renard, which is um, between Avignon and saint rémy de provence And so, um, so my experience also is that uh, there's something about I, I love those little villages. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, <laughs> the market. What, what I like about it, if you don't need to work, then you get up. And life in France, as you know as well as I do, revolves around the table. All the word about in the morning is what they're going to have for breakfast. All the word about at lunchtime is what they're going to have for lunch. And what the word about after lunch is what they're going to have for dinner. Mm. Their eating times is not eating to stay alive. They live to eat. They love to sit around, talk shit at the table, crack bread. And, That's it. And it's a totally different way of life. And the, and the pleasure in the in the simple things and just the joy of new seasonal whatever strawberries or yeah. whatever it is, or going out and foraging. So I had friends who would just go, "Oh, on va aller chercher de la salade," and I was thinking, "What? What? Well, just lettuce?" But they would be out getting dandelion leaves, yeah. and you know, yeah. <laughs> and um, or going to the beach and picking up shellfish off the beach and so on. It's just it's just a different approach. Totally different. I mean, like, my wife had a tomato out my friend's garden. He's got a farm and they make their own bread, they make their own shit and everything. Then make their own wine, make their own bread, and they've got these raggedy-ass-looking tomatoes. No fertilizer, no, it's totally organic. But they're all, like, spastic-looking tomatoes. Yeah. Big ones, small ones, all. She had one, she couldn't believe it. She goes, I've never had anything like this before. So mm. It's real, it's a real tomato. It's red because it's sun-ripened and you know, they yeah. just water it and it's got fertilised soil that they change the soil every year. You know, mm. And again, same, the peaches taste different. Uh, everything tastes different. That's right. Even if you go to a supermarket in France, it's a market, it's real, you can actually taste it. It's Where it. you go to a supermarket here, they're red but taste nothing. Yeah, they yeah. look like peaches but they're rock hard and taste nothing. So all... how do you source your, what, your ingredients? Um, to be quite honest, the veg has always been hard for numerous reasons. Again, the seasons are weird here. Well, yeah. well we're in the middle well, of autumn, we're in autumn like you're walking around in summer. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that means there's no pine mushrooms, no slippery jacks. Everything's behind, mm. which means once the rain comes, they'll come. But I'm in the middle of winter, so that means winter prolongs. But I can still get figs. Mm. I should. Figs should have finished two or three weeks ago. Mm. I've already got the new duck dish to go, but why bother? I've got the figs. Yeah, yeah. I've got the figs as a dessert. Figs everywhere. That's the thing. That's what I like about France as well. In France, they use everything that's in season. When I was in Hong Kong, there is no season. Nine hours from everywhere. That's what it is. Well, that's you have to import everything, don't you? You're nine hours away from everywhere. Yeah. So basically, Hong Kong is there. When I was, I just done a guest ship promotion in Hong Kong where I used to work. I had Brittany Tabert from Brittany, the Pigeon from Brest, Rouget Foie Gras from around the same area, Marons from Western Australia, Filipino 
yellowfin tuna. And I was using uh, chicken livers from France. Madeira from Madeira. Yeah. Vegetables from Holland. <laughs> Micro herbs from Holland. Mm. And the seafood is actually fresher there than it is here. It's astounding. The amount of coastal places you go to, and well, I can only speak about Victoria, where they cannot sell you fresh, you cannot get fresh fish in the restaurants because it all gets sent elsewhere. That's incredible. <laughs> the marrons I got, basically they were harvested, packed and sent to me within 24 hours. It takes longer to get them from WA here. I only get two deliveries a week here. We've got marrons as a special, they arrive today, a special and tomorrow. Mm. The, breast, the, the, the fish that you get from Ranges in Paris comes mm. from Brittany. Mm. So from Brittany to Paris, from Paris to Hong Kong takes less than 24, uh, 48 hours maximum. But again, yeah. the way it arrives, it's all iced perfectly. Yeah. The fish is still rigamortis, shiny eyes, bright red gills, rigamortis. Mm. And now the French have even introduced a new system where it's like, you know, Toro has to be blast frozen with almost like liquid nitrogen to minus 40 or 60 colors, you know, mm. the tuna belly Toro. Okay. The French are doing that now to some of their fish and exporting it out. And it's, you open it and it's just like fresh as a desert. Wow. So far behind because they have to go and fish, then it takes to get here, then it goes there and you sell the fish from Victoria, it goes to Sydney. Mm. Well, the stuff from Queensland comes down to Sydney via Sydney to Melbourne. They close the bay for um, commercial fishermen in Port Phillip because the government want to give more yachting licenses. So again, even even prawns and all that lot, they get them processed overseas. Yeah, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Well, New Zealand, you know, we're, we're a thriving dairy industry, but the cost of milk and butter is and cheese is beyond most. Because you know what, all, all the all the milk that's exported to China to mm. milk powder, baby powder, because mm. they got done years ago for not selling real milk, mm. and kids died from it, the mm. infants died, so now they import all the dried milk to make that's the right. powder. Here we are backwards. But... The thing is, it it's not the case backwards. It's everybody gets paid this wage. Well, let's go back to the beginning of the conversation. Everybody gets this minimum wage, mm. and yet there's still people bludging off the system like there is everywhere in the world. But to produce something in Australia takes more money to produce because of the minimum wage, the working hours, the overtime, the public holidays, the days in low, etc., etc., etc. So you, as a consumer, get impacted right across the board on everything. Mm. I, I tell you, Estes Test, I used to buy a pigeon for $9 and sell it for between 50 and 60, depends on the economy, if it's foie gras, ravioli, with truffle, whatever. I buy the pigeon now, in 2018, which is basically 20 years on, no, 18 years on. I buy it for $27, and I still sell it for 49 to 60. Yeah. So it was $9 to buy before, now it's 27. Yeah. But I still can't charge more than that. No, that's right. I can't right. afford to put it on the menu. No. So what you want, if you've got on a pigeon or you want a marron or you want a braised pig straws with sweetbreads and uh, seps, you've got to pre-order online. Mm. And I'll special them tomorrow, I'll special some tonight. But people now is pre-ordering them online 
and I'd take a credit card deposit. Well, it's fair enough, and, it, and it's also, you know, I spoke to Sean Quaid at Lume, and he said that whole, you know, the ticketing system that they use, they can't afford, they can't afford with the kind of food they're cooking for people to be no-shows, because they've, I think it's, what is it about our, what is it as consumers that we feel that we can do that? It's, it's, it is so rude, and yet we just see everybody as maybe, I don't know, as another... Well, I, I, I tell you, I got a huge complaint, and we're going to go via social media because I had a table of 10 organized by a Chinese travel agent in Melbourne. No show. Someone rang him up and said, oh, yeah, we can't come with the boy's sick. And clearly on the telephone, they're in another restaurant. Mm. So we charged him the credit card. Mm. Uh, I think it's $50 a head for a no show. Mm. And he spat it. Yeah. He spat it. He was going to go legal on me and all that sort of stuff. So I've got table of 10, which I can't sell over the Christmas period. No. I'm waiting for this it's gurus right. to come over. They're in Flower Drum or some bloody place. Yeah. Where, that's the problem. They book three or four restaurants. I think they can get away. So I've lost 10 people times $150, 1,500 in the bin. That's it. And then eating somewhere else. So I charge him 300 bucks. The guy's spewing. He's going to go legal on me. He's going to put in the papers. How can you do this? Blah, 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 blah. And again, you're a new business, I don't want any negative press, so I buckled. And at this time, it wasn't Theo in charge of the restaurant, it was this other guy who was no longer with us. And I told him, you can't do that. No. You can't, because it's, again, ten covers, a two. So I actually put um, credit card deposits or credit card details on four and upwards, especially Fridays and Saturdays. Mm. Uh, it's, Fair enough. But people get offended. Yeah. It's like, so... Public holidays. I put 10% surcharge on. Mm. One guy spy. Mm. He doesn't realise that I have to pay my staff double money mm. to be here. So instead of $26 for a waiter, it's $52 for a waiter. But I think it's that. Um, <laughs> but, the, but it's that the cult of the individual. Our society doesn't see anything outside ourselves, and they don't see your restaurant as a personal investment, and that you're putting up this really great food. I mean, they understand it's really great food, but you know that it's all about them. Yeah. You know, so again, I look at it like this: if you're 15 minutes late for the aeroplane, it normally leaves without you. That's right. They're not going to hang around for you. No. If you're 15 minutes late at the doctor's, mm-hmm. you're done as well. You That's normally it. have to wait an hour at the doctor's, but if you if you turn up late, you normally get done. You have to make a, an appointment for the doctor's. If you don't turn up, they charge you. This, yeah. Why is it any different for a restaurant? Tell me exactly. about it. Yeah. Normally the ones that spit it are mm. doctors or yeah. professionals. They're, they're, yeah. I just said, I said to Theo, and I said to Crystal all along, there's only two things to sell in here. Food and beverages. And one of the funniest stories I've ever told anybody is when I was at X, I had the same philosophy. You've got food and beverages to sell. I didn't like BYO in them days. and I was a little bit more vocal than I am now. And somebody actually brought a six pack of VB in and stashed it under his chair. <laughs> I said, it's like this, man. I went out, no need to bother the maitre d' and all that. I went out and said, it's like this, man. You can either give me your VB and buy the beer at me at $10 a bottle, or the corkage policy in this restaurant is $50 a bottle. So that's six bottles times 50. So what do you want to do? <laughs> oh, you can take the beer. I said, right. Uh, we've got Cascade Pale, we've got Pest to this, we've got this, we've got that. Five, for ten dollars a bottle. Or drinking around at fifty dollars a bottle. You tell me. Mm. You've got to ask it, but 
You know what I mean? You've got two things to sell. It's like coming into, I remember I was at the Atlantic once, some Asian people, they actually brought dim sims from the takeaway and we'll them. At well, the table. Yeah, it was a saying, a woman <laughs> walked in with a mango she wanted to eat at the yeah, table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Astounding. We, we think we're really educated here, but we still have a lot to learn. You'd never see that in France, would you? No. Because they have respect for the whole industry from the farmer to the chef to the maitre d' to the waiters. They're not adamant, arrogant, they're not rude. They're, they have a respect for the guy who grows it, to the guy who cooks it, to the guy who serves it. Mm. A real just of... Because again, it's not eating to stay alive. They are alive to eat. That's it. There's an appreciation of the food, it's an appreciation of the wine. When it's vigneron, everybody's so happy the vigneron's finished, everybody gets on it. That's it. Eating and drinking till the early hours of the morning because it's bang. Yeah. They're all in the bottle. Let's wait until we can drink. Yeah. Have they just ain't got it here? No. Yeah. I was in a hairdresser's once when I first got to France and um, the whole time I was there, it turns out that the hairdresser was like the, the, the town drunk. They kept disappearing behind the curtain and coming back out and it was just a haircut. I don't know. Anyway, I was there for about over an hour and these two, other two women in there, the whole discussion was about the correct recipe for a galette des rois, the king's cake, whether it was a, a brioche or a um, frangipane. And I was just thinking, yeah, I'm totally in France. <laughs> this is great. That's it. I, I stayed in an apartment, I tell you, I shit you not. It was a fully furnished apartment. There was a 12-seat dining room table with 12 seats. Sideboard with all the serving, cutlery, and crockery you could think of. A Peugeot car seat. Stuck on some wood. <laughs> the bed was like, don't even think about what the bed was like. But in the kitchen, I've got a crockery show machine, I've got the cruises, I've got every piece of cooking equipment you can think of. But in the living room, there was a table Mayhem. and chairs. And a single Peugeot car seat yep. on a piece of wood. And that was the armchair. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, you th so what they're trying to tell you, I had no money, so all I'd do is go to the market, or I'd go and try and find mushrooms with the local pisshead that I knew, and the whole day off would be eating, cooking and eating. Yeah. That's all I could afford. Yeah. So yeah. So I got it right. You had the table to eat on. In the kitchen to cook it with, <laughs> so not need to spend any more money going out and enjoying French food, doing yeah. it yourself. Yeah. So yeah. Perfect. Thank you. So, yeah, as I say, it's not really old food. I think it's new techniques doing classic combinations like salmon and sauce americana. I did that in Estes Test on my first menu in 1997. But the salmon was a pavé pan fried. The gnocchi was kefir potatoes crushed with marrons and the sauce was American. So I don't know this guy is, he looks like an ass man. Yeah. Sauce American, same. And that was it. Not too much similarity, apart from basically really. Where? I don't know. Somewhere where you were working once where I was, I don't know. I used to work Est, I used to work. Lux, I used to work at Ondine, I used to work at the Atlantic. At the which? The Atlantic. Estes Test, Lux, Ondine, Atlantic. Very, I mean, I'm, 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 about 20 years ago, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, good luck. Alright, take care. Yeah. See ya. Uh -huh. What was I talking about? What area are we in? Yeah. <laughs>
So basically, it's all the ingredients in the first dish I did, which got five out of five by Stephen Downlink, or one of those reviewers. But it's totally different now. It's all the oil comfort. This potatoes are knocky. The chestnuts are on there. The marrons are actually into the sauce. Mm. There's no bullshit salad, right? Yeah. I, you know, and I was thinking too because you know chefs talk about it's that like you're continually learning, and I, you probably, I mean, you you do know it all, but I guess that you're no, learning. No, no, no. <laughs> apprenticeship. Yeah. Those I think they know it all are the ones that never change the menu because they think they know what they're doing. Mm. What I try and do is bring my what they. The, I've got 30,000 recipes on my database. They can look at any cookbook they want to look at, they can reproduce whatever it is, but it's got to be within my guideline. When I, work, when I went to the waterside, I had carte blanche to do whatever I wanted, but it had to be in the vein of the restaurant. Mm. And Mr. Roo's got three star Michelin for 30 years because of people like me and other people that bring youth and vigor and new, new ideas, but putting them on the same wheels. You just put a new tire on his wheels, his foundations, everything. Coming back from Hong Kong, right? My head chef, he was, he, he, he's now in, ch- in charge of the restaurant I was in. He was a sous chef, now he's my old job. He does, we haven't worked together now for 15 years nearly. We worked together for two years and he, I sent him somewhere else to work and now he's come back. I've been here eight years, whatever. We go through f- between 10 and 15 guest chefs every year at the Jockey Club and they've like from Mozimo number two in the world up to mm. number five in the world from the Guru from Peru and all this sort of so plus Michelin stars and it's changed his style quite dramatically all the influence from these guest chefs lots of powders and all this molecular shit soils but when it to yeah soils and faeces <laughs> soil and faeces but when I taste his sauces, they're exactly the same. I said, why the sauce is not the best of all the taste? Yeah, yeah. And the ones I told him how to make. And when the guest chefs come, with all these recipes for these new sauces, I said, no, keep them the way they are. Yeah, yeah. So as I said, Mr. Root taught me how to make it. Marco showed me how to refine it. The rest of it's my own ideas using the same wheels. I just put different tires on it. <laughs> and that's basically all the food is. Yeah. You can put this into a soil, but at the end of the day, there's only so much soil you can eat. <laughs> no, I mean, That's it. <laughs> I don't mind a little bit of new, new yeah. stuff, but I couldn't eat. So if I was, so if you used to come here for a uh, tasting menu of the night time, seven courses, you'd have the muse boots, you'd have, say for instance, a kingfish entree, you'd have maybe a, a scallop, then you'd have a pork belly, then you'd have a salmon, then you'd have a meat, then you'd have a dessert, then you'd have 34, so it's actually nine or ten courses before you leave. Mm. But you know, the words I use are kingfish, scallop, pork belly, salmon, mm. meat, main course, duck, then a dessert. Where you go to most places around town, you're going to get twigs and soil and shit mm. to make up your nine courses. Mm. I think to get good value for money, most people, I, I believe, my own opinion, when I go off dinner, I want to eat some quality protein. Yeah. You know, I know, it's my day to do the stuff once a day. I'm worried about roast chicken inside because that's what I want to eat. Yeah. Nice. So, again, like that, we try and do quality protein, cooked properly with a good sauce and seasonable fruit and vegetables. Mm. It's not rocket science, that's what we've been doing in France. Fucking, don't need me to reinvent the wheel where the French have got it right for the last, how many centuries? A long time. That's what I do, that's what I've always done. I believe 
tomato and basil go together. I can't believe celeriac and truffle are together. But when everybody asks me my philosophy, you know what I always tell them? They're in season at the same time. Mm. So obviously you're going to put tomato and basil together because they're at the same time. So one of the desserts is a raspberry tart with, basil, uh, with balsamic ice cream. Because balsamic and raspberries and balsamic strawberries is one of the most classic combinations of mascarpone. So it's tart, mascarpone mousse, uh, raspberry gel, fresh raspberries, balsamic gel and a balsamic ice cream with like freeze-dried raspberries. Why? Because we've been doing it for fucking centuries. Yeah. <laughs> That's about as complicated as it is for me. Yeah. Perfect. I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to end. Thank you.